Welcome to the Code Life podcast with me, Nathan Blackaby, and my great mate, Carl Beach. Hello, mate. You all right? Pretty good, mate. Oh, we've just been catching up, haven't we? Chewing the fat a little. Yeah, mate. So, um, before we go any further, we, you know, I did, uh, I quit on the old lockdown here. Yeah. I locked down one. Yeah. Then I kept in save lockdown too, but I started growing it again. It's growing at a fast rate. But you Good. have not you have not quit <laughs> since lockdown one, so I want to see it. What the hell? Yeah. It might not be good. Let's have a look. It's <laughs> <laughs> uh, amazing. Yeah. Well, the question is, how yeah. how far are you taking it? Um, so I, in my head, I was thinking I'd go sort of, you know, Joe Wicks, super good looking bloke, great physique. I was thinking I'd go Joe, yeah, like I'd go Joe Wicks level. So down to sort of, uh, here and then see how, see how it feels. (laughs) You're going to like top knot it? I can, yeah, I can top knot it now and tie it back in a man bun. Do you do that often? No, I haven't, to be fair. I don't, no. I tend to wear just a hat, like a beanie, most of the time. Uh, yeah, it's quite fun having longer hair. It's a bit different. I've never done it. So I've, I've been growing it for, yeah, a year. It's just been a year, yeah. But, um, yeah, it's a bit of fun, isn't it, lockdown? What else is happening uh, in life for you? Homeschooling? Homeschooling. Um, like lots of blokes tuning in, just... Yeah, trying to balance out the, the day, really, and keep it interesting for the kids. Take them out for a walk, walk the dog. Uh, yeah, I've been doing brownie badges with Annie, my eight-year-old. So, uh, yeah, it's just a lot of... Um, it's just resilience, isn't it, mate? I think you need some resilience in this time. You've got to yeah, dig deep. Yeah, you do need resilience. You do. And I think... Uh, not necessarily routine, but routine habits. So I think it's a bit hard at the moment to say I'll do this at eight o'clock every day. But yeah, it's something you can do. But what I'm trying to do is um, we were talking about this earlier, weren't we, off the call? But um, right, not drink. I don't do dry, dry January at all. No. But I'm doing. But I think I believe in a longer term change of habits. So yeah. No, no booze Monday to Thursday. Yeah. Trying to, you know, trying to run a certain amount of distance every month, but yeah. not same time every day, so I can't because life's yeah. unpredictable. But yeah, the exercise, the the cutting out of the drink, eating healthy, yeah, these things that you know. And I think for me, I mean, I everyone's work is different. Some people full on working, like educators yeah. or medics or whatever. Yeah, I find I can't sit in front of Zoom back to back. I've Tomorrow, actually, which will be Thursday, depending on whenever you're listening to this, but it's a Thursday. I've got literally from half eight right away until late, oh. until about 9.30. But most days, I can't do more than six-hour Zoom calls. I need space. Yeah. So, like, building in space is important. I read one interesting article where um, this builder, right, this project manager in a big building firm, he said, I've been in the trade 30 years, and I'm used to meetings, like loads of meetings. He said, but why is it I'm, I'm exhausted, mentally exhausted after two or three meetings on Zoom? Yeah. So you realise what it is, you jump from subject to subject, from discipline to discipline without a break. Yeah. You go Zoom this, Zoom that, Zoom this, Zoom that, and you're not stopping the process or stopping yeah. to grab a through or just constant. So I think building in healthy habits yeah. 
exercise and giving space is very important. Yeah, oh, spot on, mate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've given a load of tips, haven't we, before on this stuff. And we go, we're going live on the Sunday night, live on Sunday. So do tune in. Um, actually, it would have been just gone, actually, when you get this podcast. So thanks for yeah, watching. We're basically back. Sunday night yeah, live. Is we're back. But yeah, we're, mate, we're digging deep and we're not, um, we're not pessimistic blokes. We're men of hope and, and we, we see a, a saviour who's, beaten death we're not we're not beaten but we are digging deep and we're you know we're not going to give up but it's it's hard graft isn't it hard hard yards yeah and you know i think the nation is uh experiencing grief i think the nation's grieving you know yeah i mean first time round, uh back in march april a lot of people saying oh does anyone know anyone who's died (laughs) yeah now we do yeah. yeah, we know of people, or people yeah. in our church and family members. Yeah. It's almost a regular daily thing now on, on Facebook where someone I know has lost someone from COVID related stuff. Yeah, it's hard. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's tough, mate. I, I, I was reading, I was doing a bit of reading actually on this, on endurance, perseverance, resilience, mm. this kind of, just in this moment, I thought it might be good to have a little story of someone who, who just, he refused to give up. And I'm not sure why, because there's points in this story where you think I'd have given up. Um, and, and even there's a question as to why he was doing it. So it's a polar exploration across the Antarctic in 1913. I've never quite understood that one. No, well, this is the thing. What I mean, we could do a whole podcast on what drives people, blokes, to do these things. Just on that polar thing. I mean, for me, I have a fascination with the idea of going to the North or South Pole. That's yeah. Just- and in the magnetic north pole or whatever just to yeah. be there and look at the vast expanse but walking there through whiteness yeah no miserable miserable i i, I went hunting once with a mate in france he was a licensed hunter oh, I that, yeah. yeah amazing experience and he took me out it's five in the morning in uh, near grenoble and we hiked up in this natural reserve place. Oh, and the snow was up to my knees. And after about an hour of that, I, was ju- I wasn't just tired. It was like a deep exhaustion, like I need to stop. It was just so draining physically, <laughs> unbelievable. Did you get to shoot the gun? Yeah, well, the thing was, we had a bracelet for a female uh, wild goat. I can't remember what they called them. Yeah, it's goat. gone, but... Yeah, goat. And uh, we, mate, it it was amazing. We tracked this like movement of goats up this mountain. We were on this sort of side of the cliff face where they couldn't see us, and we were like sweating. So we laid chilled out and we're watching it. And there was a herd of pigs came through, wild boar, like chewing through everything. And then up high were some eagles, and they were hunting the baby goats of this group we were following. Yeah. And, we, and, and my mate gave me the rifle. I looked down, massive scope, zeroed in. I'm on this goat. And he went, no, no, it's a male. You can't shoot it. You can't shoot. And that was it. I couldn't shoot. And within five minutes, we heard a shot ring out. And there was another hunting team out. And they, they got the shot on the on the bracelet that they had. It was like a big male, two, three-year-old or something. But... And if you shot a goat, like a massive goat, yeah, you've got to drag it down the mountain. You've got to drag it down. So they, and I watched them do it. They they gut it in on the mountain, just guts out, and that goes to the eagles. 
and then they put it in a black bag and they fold it up so its legs i mean it's horrific to see but its legs its legs come up so it's basically bunched up yeah. its legs are by its head uh, and then they put it into a rucksack and they take turns carrying it down so you've just got this goat's head sticking out the top of the rucksack like a big body sack, you know, like the big. What do they do it, make a curry, stews, yeah. casserole. So the the he was really remote. This guy, this great mate of mine, he's back in the UK now, yeah. um, and he was part of this little community. There was what thirty houses, and they would take the the kills, the shoot down to the village hall. The men would gut it, uh, not gut it, but like section it off, and they'd give it out to people. So all the hunt, all the meat would go to people that weren't hunting or what, you know couldn't get out to get food and then they split it up between the guys hunting so he had a big freezer chest freezer yeah it's full of deer legs and goat goat meat and get it out cook it glass of wine yeah it's amazing mate yeah it sounds amazing. i like i like that sort of hunting i'm not i'm not pheasant shoot or rabbit in or anything like that so much i'd i'd hunt to feed other people and have you know but yeah so I think I didn't get to take the shot, but in that moment I would have I would have pulled the trigger if it was the right animal. Yeah. Yeah, I don't mind hunting to eat. Yeah. I don't get. I know we're sidetracking here from trudging through snow, but what I don't get is this trophy. You know, some rich bloke flies south and shoots a lion. I just think that's disgusting. Nah. Yeah, no, I'm not not with yeah, that. It's, just, it's like a psychopath scale thing. Well, they, what do you want to do that for? Yeah, and they literally drive to where these lions are, and they and they bred them just to be sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's disgusting, mate. It, yeah, the experience of well, we didn't hunt, but tracking with this guy, like we we were tracking these animals for hours, and in the end, didn't shoot and just watched it, and then went I back. Like the idea that, I like the idea of a decent camera with a decent lens and tracking, taking an amazing photo that no one else is going to get. Yeah. Same principle without yeah. anything. Yeah, yeah. No, it's amazing, mate. A great experience. But um yeah, there it was. So what do you reckon? Should we do you want to talk a bit about this guy? I mean there's Yeah, tell us about this bloke. Well, there's a little bit to read. So because we've been oh. trying to um do these podcasts a little bit more in depth for you guys. So there'll be sort of a 15, 20 minute bit of reading. Uh but we wanted you to kind of tune into this stuff if you're driving home or you know, and you can pause it, come back. So, I might interject with a question. Yeah, yeah, interject with some questions, and I'll just, I'll just read a bit, and we'll chat over. So, this guy, Douglas Mawson, born fifth of May, eighteen eighty-two, in Shipley, West Riding, Yorkshire. Right. He ended up living in South Australia, and he died in Australia, age seventy-six. Uh, but he was one of these explorers. Um, he's got an OBE. Uh, and he's, he, I think he might even be on the hundred dollar bill of the Australian currency. He's, it's sort of a figure for them. Um, but anyway, let me read some of this. Uh, even today, with advanced food and radios and insulated clothing, a journey on foot across Antarctica is one of the hardest tests a human being can be asked to endure. A hundred years ago, it was worse. Then, Wool clothing absorbed snow and damp. High energy food came in an, 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 an unappetizing mix of rendered fats called pemmican. Worst of all, extremes of cold pervaded everything. Mate, I, I, I hate the cold. 
I'm just going to put it out there. I hate your card. Absolute Cherry Garrard, who sailed with Captain Scott's doomed South Pole expedition of 1910-1930, recalled his teeth, the nerves of which had been killed, split to pieces and fell victim to temperatures that plunged as low as minus 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Can you believe your teeth freezing and falling out? That's bad. That's bad. <laughs> so I'm reading this off this article. We'll see how far we get. Cherry Garrard survived to write an account of his adventures, a book he titled The Worst Journey in the World. But even his Antarctic trek made it total made in total darkness in the depths of the southern winter was not quite so appalling as the desperate march faced one year later by Australian explorer Douglas Mawson. Mawson's journey had gone down in the annuals of polar exploration as probably the most terrible ever undertaken in, in Antarctica. In 1912, when he set sail across the Southern Ocean, Mawson was 30 years old and already acclaimed as one of the best geologists of his generation. Born in Yorkshire, England, but happily settled in Australia, he had declined the chance to join Robert Falcon Scott's doomed expedition in order to lead the Australasian Antarctic Expedition, whose chief purpose was to explore and map some of the most remote fastness of the white continent. Tall, lean, balding, earnest and determined, Mawson was an Antarctic veteran, a supreme organiser and physically tough. The Australasian party anchored in Commonwealth Bay, an especially remote part of the Antarctic coast, in January 1912. Over the next few months, wind speeds on the coast averaged 50 miles per hour and sometimes topped 200 miles per hour. And blizzards were almost constant. Mawson's plan was to split his expedition into four groups. One to man base camp, the other three to head into the interior to do scientific work. He nominated himself to lead what was known as the Far Eastern Shore Party, a three-man team assigned to survey several glaciers hundreds of miles from base. It was an especially risky assignment. Mawson and his men had the furthest to travel and hence the heaviest loads to carry and they would have to cross an area pitted with deep crevasses, crevices each concealed by snow. That's that's a fear of mine, mate. Dropping well, through these snow. Masses, like when they climb up Everest, they have, they go across these little, you know, they're all pre-marked out, and they with these yeah. little aluminium ladders going yeah. across them. But when you can walk across what looks like snow, it yeah. all just goes out. It's like hundreds of foot drop. Yeah, it's horrible. Hidden traps. <laughs> oh, mate. Mawson, back to the book. Mawson selected two companions to join him. Lieutenant Belgrave Ninnis, a British army officer, was the expedition's dog handler. Ninnis, close friend of Xavier Mertz, was a 28-year-old Swiss lawyer whose chief qualifications for the trek were his idiocentric English, a source of great amusement to the other two. His, contra his constant high spirits and his standing as a champion cross-county skier. The explorers took three sledges pulled by a total of 16 huskies and loaded with a combined 1,720 pounds of food, 
survival gear and scientific instruments. Mawson limited each man to a minimum of personal possessions. Ninish chose a volume of Thackeray, Mertz a collection of Sherlock Holmes short stories, and Mawson took his diary and a photograph of his fiancée, an upper-class Australian woman named Francisca, but known to all as Paquita. At first, Mawson's party made good time, departing from Commonwealth Bay November 10, 1912. They travelled 300 miles by December 13. Almost everything was going according to plan. The three men reduced their load as they ate their way through their supplies, and only a couple of sick dogs, sick dogs had hindered their progress. Even so, Mawson felt troubled by a series of peculiar incidents which he wrote, which he would write later, might have suggested to a suspicious man that something was badly amiss. First, he had a strange dream one night, a vision of his father. Mawson had left his parents in good health, but the dream occurred, he would later realise, shortly after his father had, had unexpectedly sickened and died. Then the explorers found one husky, which had been pregnant but it was devouring her own puppies. This was normal for dogs in such extreme conditions, but it unsettled the men. Doubly so, when far inland and out of nowhere, a bird smashed into the side of Ninus's sledge. Where could it have come from? Mert scribbled in his notebook. Just a sec. As we've got children at home scoring, can you give me a minute, sweetie? I'm just in a podcast. In a little while, come in. Thanks. Kids at home, happy days. Back to the book. Now, a series of near disasters made the men begin to feel that their luck must be running out. Three times, Ninnis almost plunged into concealed cracks in the ice. Mawson was suffering, yeah. Mawson was suffering from a split lip that, that sent shafts of pain shooting across the left side of his face. Ninnis had a bout of snow blindness and developed an abscess on the tip of one finger. When the pain became too much for him to bear, Mawson lanced it with a pocket knife without the benefit of anaesthetic. <laughs> so, mate, they're getting smashed out already. They're in a bad way. <laughs> Back to the book. On the evening of December 13, 1912, the three explorers pitched camp in the middle of yet another glacier. Mawson abandoned one of the three sledges and redistributed uh, the load on two others. The men slept fitfully, disturbed by distant booms and cracking deep below them. Mawson and Ninnis did not know what to make of the noises, but they frightened Mertz, whose long experience of snowfields taught him that warmer air had made the ground, had made the ground ahead of them unstable. The snow masses must have been collapsing their arches, he wrote. The sound was like distant thunder, a cannon. So, mate, you get this picture. This this place they're in does not want them to be there, does it? No. But you're not welcome. You're just no. not welcome here. So, back to the book, 1912. Next day, dawned sunny and warm by Antarctic standards, just 11 degrees below freezing. The partly... The, the party continued to make good time, and at noon, Mawson halted briefly to shoot the sun in order to determine their position. 
He was standing on the runners of his moving sledge, completing his calculations when he became aware that Mertz, who was skiing ahead of the sledges, had stopped singing his Swiss student songs and had raised one ski pole in the air to signal that he had encountered a crevasse. Mawson called back to warn Ninnis before returning to his calculations. It was only several minutes later that he noticed that Mertz had halted again, again and was looking back in alarm. Twisting around, Mawson realised that Ninnis and his sledge and dogs had vanished. What? Yeah, gone. Just gone? Ma gone. Mawson and Mertz hurried back a quarter mile to where they had crossed the crevasse, praying that their companion had been lost to view behind a rise in the ground. Instead, they discovered a yawning chasm in the snow 11 feet across. Crawling forward on his stomach and peering into the void, Mawson dimly made out a narrow ledge far below. He saw two dogs lying on it, one dead, the other moaning and writhing. Oh. Below the ledge, the walls of the crevasse plunged down into darkness. Frantically, Mawson called Ninnis' name again and again. Nothing came back but the echo. Using a knotted fishing line, he sounded the depth to the ice ledge and found it to be 150 feet. Too far to climb down to. He and Mertz took turns calling for their companion for more than five hours, hoping that he had merely been stunned or knocked out. Eventually, giving up, they pondered the mystery of why Ninnis had plunged into a crevasse that the others had crossed safely. Mawson concluded that his companion's fatal error had been to run beside the sledge rather than stand astride on its runners as he had done. With his weight concentrated on just a few square inches of snow, Ninnis had exceeded the load that the crevasse lid would bear. The fault, though, was Mason's. As leader, he could have insisted on skis or at least snowshoes for his men. Just pause there. So one's gone. Dogs are gone. Sled's gone. And like you said, stood in one spot and the, and the snow just swallowed him up. Gone. Instant death. Yeah. That's a bad drop, isn't it? Just into the abyss, into this deep... A bad day in the office. Yeah. But what is compelling people to do that? Right, right. Fame, when recognition. I, I look at a hill. Like if I'm if I'm out like a little run early or I'm out walking, I see a hill. I want to go up the top. Yeah. But I don't always do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know, mate. Maybe it. Maybe it's a mindset. These explorers. Maybe they have a different mindset. It, they. I remember you saying before, like if you see a wall, you want to know what's behind it. Yeah. And maybe they see barriers and they want to see what's beyond them. Yeah, all the climbers I know, the proper climbers I know, they always want to go higher. Yeah, well, that's it, yeah. Gotta go higher, gotta go higher, gotta go yeah. further. Like I was reading about, I thought about doing, um, Karen always said to me, you can take up skydiving when the kids aren't, when you're not responsible for the kids anymore, you know, they're going yeah. away. Yeah. I'm nearly there, I'm getting one through vet school, you know, I'm supporting everybody at the moment, she can't run yeah. business. So I'm nearly there, and I'm really fancy doing one of these skydiving courses. Accelerated free form, and then you get yeah. in there. But I was reading up the safety record of it. And normal skydiving, pretty safe. Yeah. People die because it ain't good enough. They got they got to then do stunt shoots or open lower, open faster. Yeah. Just keep pushing it. 
base jumping, got you know, ring suits. They don't yeah. die. Yeah. It's the law of diminishing returns. You ain't satisfied. These guys have got to go further, harder, longer, higher. Yeah. Yeah. It's not Mate, there. The ain't scratched, is it? No, it's not. No, it's not. Interesting. Mate, this is, I mean, we're about halfway through, so we're doing good. These guys, they, well, they don't get much better. Let's say that. <laughs> I'll read a bit more. More uh, Back to the book. Mawson and Mert read the burial service at the lip of the void and paused to take stock. Their situation was clearly desperate. When the party had split their supplies between the two remaining sledges, Mawson had assumed that the lead sled was far more likely to encounter difficulties. So Ninny's uh, sledge had been loaded with most of their food supplies and their tent. Practically all the food had gone. Spade, pick, tent, Mawson wrote. All that remained was sleeping bags and food to last a week and a half. We considered it a possibility to get through to winter quarters by eating the dogs, he added. So nine hours after the accident started, uh, but sorry, so nine hours after the accident started back, but terribly handicapped, may God help us all. The first stage of the return journey was a mad dash. So they're on their way back. Mawson, Mawson noted to the spot where they had camped the previous night, there he, had, he and Mertz recovered the sledge they had abandoned. And Mawson used his pocket knife to hack its runners into poles for some spare canvas. Now they had a shelter, but there was still the matter of deciding how to attempt the return journey. They had left no food deposits on their way out. Their choices were to head for the sea, a route that was longer, but offered the chance of seals to eat and the slim possibility that they might sight the expedition's supply ship or to go back the way they'd come. Mawson selected the latter course. He and Mertz killed the weakest of their remaining dogs, wow. ate what they could of its stringy flesh and liver, oh. and fed what was left to the other huskies. Mate, so right this now we're... Desperate, mate. This is desperate, isn't it? Desperate situation. Proper bad. <coughs> would you eat your dog? Yeah, of course I would, mate. I'd I'm not... I would have eaten my dog. The stringy old German Shepherd again. I would have eaten. <laughs> I, I'd like have to... a, dog in, a dog in really bad shape is in yeah. bad shape. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not good. Not good. I mean, this is brutal. It does get quite graphic. I'll just let you know. But back to the book. For the first few days, they made good time. But soon, Mawson went snow blind. The pain was agonizing. And though Mertz bathed his leader's eyes with a solution of zinc sulfate and cocaine, the pair had to slow down. <laughs> Get out of your eyes, keep going. Oh dear. They then marched into, the, into a whiteout, seeing nothing but greyness. Mert scribbled in his notebook and two huskies collapsed. The men had to harness themselves to the sled to continue. Each night's rations were less palatable than the last. Learning by experiment, Mawson found that it was worth the while spending some time in boiling the dog's meat thoroughly. Thus, a tasty soup was prepared, 
as well as a supply of edible meat in which the muscular tissue tissue and the gristle were reduced were reduced to the consistency of a jelly Lovely. the paws took longest of all. Chum, mate they just were like you yeah we've got to eat you boys you're gone uh the paws took longest of all to cook but treated to lengthy stewing they became quite digestible even so the two men's physical condition rapidly deteriorated mertz yeah, mate, Mertz Mawson wrote in his diary on January the 5th, 1913, he's generally in a very bad condition. Skin coming off his legs, etc. Despite his leader's desperation to keep moving, Mertz insisted that a day's rest might revive him and the pair spent 24 hours huddled in their sleeping bags. Things are in the most serious state for us both if he cannot go 8 or 10 metres a day. In a day or two, we are doomed, Mawson wrote on January 6th. I could pull through myself with the provisions at hand, but I cannot leave him. His heart seems to have gone. It's very hard for me to be with 100 metres of the hut and in such a position is awful. So they weren't that far out, but 8 to 10 metres a day is all they're covering. I mean, literally dragging themselves inch by inch. I mean, it's phenomenal. Uh... The next morning, Mawson awoke to find his companion delirious. Worse, he had developed diarrhoea and fouled himself inside his sleeping bag. It took Mawson hours to clean him up and put him back inside his bag to warm up. And then he added just a few minutes later, he had some kind of fit. They began moving again and Mertz took some cocoa and beef tea. But the fits got worse and he fell into a deep delirium. They stopped to make camp. Mawson wrote, but at 8 p.m. he raves and breaks the tent pole, continues to rave, rave for hours. I hold him down, then he becomes more peaceful. I put him quietly in his bag and he dies at 2 a.m. in the morning of the 8th. Death due to exposure, finally bringing on fever. Some commentary on this says that he died partly because of eating the dog's liver. They reckon the toxicity in his blood just messed him up. Uh, on top of everything sounds else. Like, sounds like poison. Yeah, bad, mate, bad. So Mawson's now on his own. Mawson was now alone, at least 100 miles from the nearest human being and in poor physical condition. The nose and lips broke open, he wrote, and his groin was getting very painful and raw due to damp conditions and the friction of walking. The explorer would admit later that he felt utterly overwhelmed by an urge to give in. Only determination for his fiancée and to give an account of his two dead friends drove him on. At 9am on the 11th of January, the wind finally died away. Mawson had passed the days since Mertz's death productively. Using his now blunt knife, he had cut the one remaining sledge in two. He re-stowed his sail and remarkably he found the strength to drag Mertz's body out of the tent and entomb it beneath the ice blocks he hacked out of the ground. Then he began to trudge towards the endless horizon, hauling himself along. Within a few miles, Mawson's feet became so painful that each step was an agony. When he sat on, the, when he sat on his sledge and removed his boots and socks to investigate, he found that the skin on his soles 
had completely come away, leaving nothing but a mass of weeping blisters. This desperate, he smeared his feet with lanolin and bandaged the loose skin back to them before staggering on. That night, curled up in his makeshift tent, he wrote, My whole body is apparently rotting from want of proper nourishment, frostbitten fingertips festering, mucous membrane of the nose has gone, saliva glands of the mouth refusing to do duty, skin coming off my whole body. I mean, that's a bad place. Bad place. And he's still. Why do it? Well. Well, it's just survival now, isn't it? It's just get back. The next day, Mawson's feet were too raw to walk. On January 13th, he marched again, dragging himself towards the glacier he had named Mertz. And by the end of the day, he could see in the far distance the high uplands of the vast plateau that terminated at base camp. By now, he could cover little more than five miles a day. Mawson's greatest fear was that he, too, would stumble into a, a crevasse, and on January 17, he did. By a piece of incredible good fortune, however, uh, the fissure, I don't know what that word is, that opened was a little narrow, narrower than his half sledge, and with a jerk that all but snapped his fragile body clean in two, Mawson found himself dangling 14 feet down an apparently bottomless pit, spinning slowly on a fraying rope. He could sense, and he writes, the sledge creeping to the mouth. I had time to say to myself, so this is the end. Expecting every moment the sledge to crash on my head and both of us to go to the bottom unseen below. Then I thought of the food left uneaten on the sledge and of my fiance, and again giving me a chance. The chance looked very small as the rope had soared into the overhanging lid. My finger ends damaged, myself so weak. Making a great struggle, Mawson inched up the rope hand over hand. Several times he lost his grip and slipped back, but the rope held. Sensing that he had strength for one final attempt, the explorer crawled his way to the lip of the crevasse, every muscle spasming, his raw fingers slippery with blood. At last, I just did it, he recalled, and dragged himself clear. Spent, he lay by the edge of the chasm for an hour before he recovered sufficient energy to drag open his pack, get a tent out, and crawl in his sleeping bag to sleep. Wow. That night, laying in his tent, Mawson fashioned a rope ladder, which he anchored to his sledge and attached to his harness. Now, if we were to fall again, getting out of the crevasse ought to be easier. The theory was put to test the following day when the ladder saved him from another dark plummet into the ice. Mate, even at a point of utter exhaustion, he's thinking, what can I do to keep myself alive? What can Survival I do? Survival instinct, isn't it? That, yeah. that kicks yeah. in, doesn't it? That, I know it's probably stronger in some of the others, but there's that thing about I will not die, I will not die, I cannot give in. Mate, we're close to the end. Another two minutes and we're at the end because the end's a really interesting twist. The next morning, the forced march seemed worth it. Mawson, uh, oh, hang on, no, sorry, I missed a bit. Uh, towards the end of January, Mawson was reduced to four miles of marching a day. His energy was sapped by the need to dress and redress his many injuries. His hair began to fall out and he found himself pinned down by another blizzard. Desperate, he marched eight miles into the gale before struggling to get his tent erected. The next morning, the forced march seemed worth it. 
Mawson emerged from the tent into bright sunshine and to the sight of the coastline of Commonwealth Bay. He was only 40 miles from Bath and little more than 30 from a supply dump called Aladdin's Cave, which contained a cachet of supplies. <laughs> Not the least staggering of Mawson's achievements on his return was the precision of his navigation. On January 29, in another gale, he spotted a low area just 300 yards off the path of his mark. It proved to mark a note and store of food left by his worried companions at base camp. Emboldened, he pressed on, and on February 1st reached the entrance of Aladdin's cave where he wept to discover three oranges and a pineapple. Overcome, he later said by the sight of something that it was not white. He was just totally overcome by it. Now we're getting to the end. As Mawson rested that night, the weather closed in again, and for five days he was confined to his ice hole as one of the most vicious blizzards he had ever known raged over him. <clears throat> Only when the storm dropped on February 8th did he find his way to, to base at last. Just in time to see the expedition ship Aurora leaving for Australia. No. Yeah. A sure party had been left to wait for him, but it was too late for the ship to turn. And Mawson found himself forced to spend another winter in Antarctica. Oh, no. In time, he would come to view this as a blessing. He needed the gentle pace of life and the solitude of his companions to recover from his trek. <laughs> Mate, <coughs> all that. Imagine that. You stagger up and you look the ship is sailing off. <laughs> and you know it's not going to turn around for a year. Mate, <laughs> can you imagine? How old is he? Do you know? Um, let's have a look. I don't know what he was when he went on his expedition. Let's, so, hang on. Well, he was born 1882, and the expedition was 1912. So do the math on that. 30? Say that again. I think he was 30. 30. Mate, brutal. Brutal journey. And there's some speculation over the story, just to say, some people have suggested that um, he actually rationed the food rather manipulatively uh, to to take his mate Mertz to death, and then, he, and then they reckon he, he ate him. But, you know, uh, people like to discredit stories, don't they? So, yeah. we, we've, got his, we've got his journals, but what a feat of endurance by itself. And then to have the disappointment and agony of missing the boat and, and still seeing it as a blessing and saying, well, I'll get the next one. It's all right. Well, I think when the boat's sailing off and there's people there looking after you, you can kind of, you might sink into a depression. Yeah. But I think that cold kind of, I'm on my own trudging along here and I don't even know if I'm navigating in the right direction. I've got nothing to go with. I've got no GPS. Yeah. I can't call in a, an airdrop. I, I can't talk yeah. to anyone. Yeah. No email. I remember these these stories. These missionaries that went out to these far flung places. They got no Google Maps. No, just completely cut off. Completely yeah. Off. They took their coffins out. You know, knew they're going to die. One way went. trip. Yeah. One way trip. Mate, there you go. I, I was quite inspired by that because I've been a bit fed up in lockdown. But there, remember, Douglas Mawson. Good. 
Yeah. Good choice of story. <laughs> we just got to tough it out, haven't we? I think so. And the, the advantage is, and like him at the end, we've got each other, we've got mates, we've got people around us. And, you know, everyone's moaning about Zoom, but at least we get a chance to have a little chat. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Every child. But I'll tell Thanks you what, I, I wouldn't eat my cat. I'm just going to say, no, no, you couldn't, couldn't eat Spencer now. It wouldn't be right. Anyway, thanks for tuning in, yeah. Nice one. Next time. How do I stop recording? <laughs> oh, there you go.